Hi, I'm Talia and I am the host of Compassionate Conversations podcast series two. In series two, we will hear from inspiring people who work for and with young people. Each episode is designed to share ways of empowering the next generation to ensure they have the tools to go on to have mentally healthy futures. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media, Single Parents Wellbeing. Today, it is a pleasure to introduce you to Sophie Howe. Sophie is the Future Generations Commissioner of Wales. Sophie does some really incredible things to help us move towards a greener and more equal Wales. She has been a huge driving force for change, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing the journey behind some of the new programmes that have been rolled out this year and to hear about what's to come. Hiya, thank you so much for joining me today. That's lovely to be with you. Aww. So before we get into all of the exciting parts of what you do, can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? So I'm Sophie Howe and I'm the Future Generations Commissioner. I'm also, I suppose the most important job is I'm a mum of five. I was born in Ely. I grew up in a place called Ely in Cardiff, which was one of those areas that is often in the you know, the top of the Welsh index of multiple deprivation and, you know, lots of not very good statistics about poor health outcomes, poor education outcomes, poor, you know, life outcomes generally. And I was the first in my family to go to university. And I've spent a lot of time working in public policy and trying to, I suppose, change the way that we do things in Wales to make it better for, you know, for kids who come from places like me, but also for everyone in Wales. Yeah, that's amazing. And for those who don't know about your job and what it's like to be, yeah, your job, what are a few of the things that your job entails? So Wales is the only country in the world to have passed a law which requires our government and our other kind of public institutions, so like our local councils, our health boards and so on, to show that they've considered the interests of future generations when they're taking decisions. So And part of that is appointing an independent role. That's my role as commissioner. So my job is to kind of hold those institutions to account on how they're doing that and also to provide them advice and support and the sorts of things that they should be doing to account for the needs of future generations. So it's things like, you know, massive issues like, you know, tackling the climate crisis, because obviously it's a massive issue for future generations, our younger generations, and even those people who are yet to be born kind of coming behind us if there's no planet left to live on. But also big issues like intergenerational poverty. So why is it that sort of poverty tends to move from, you know, within families from one generation to the next. And we never really sort of break that cycle. Things like our education system and is our education system equipping young people with the skills that they'll need in the future, which are quite different skills to the way in which I was perhaps taught in school now that, you know, there's automation, artificial intelligence, all of the technological advances, we'll need different types of skills. So it's quite a broad remit covering the social, economic, environmental and cultural well-being of current and future generations. So there's like nothing that's not included in there, really. But, you know, it's really focusing on some of those big ticket issues that are going to be really crucial to those coming behind us living a good life. Yeah, that's amazing. It's covering big stuff. What are some of your favourite parts of doing what you're doing? I love everything about what I do. I suppose, 
you know, some of my favorite things are meeting people who are doing amazing things. And they are literally everywhere across Wales. And they often, they're the kind of unsung heroes. And it sounds kind of in a way like really boring, <laughs> but in our public services, there's often a whole load of bureaucracy. There's a load of like reasons why you can't do different and better things. If you look at that on like a big scale, the fact that, you know, we've got systems in place, which is allowing our planet to be polluted, allowing carbon emissions to affect our climate and so on. And we know the actions that we've got to take to do that, but the system is kind of stops those things happening. If you think about it from even like a social services perspective, I meet social workers who are really trying to break that cycle of, you know, why is it that if um, a parent has experienced adversity in their childhood, often that is kind of transmitted to their children? And how do we look at what we call kind of earlier intervention and prevention. So that's some of my favourite stuff. But also, I think, I suppose, you know, I'm someone who likes to call out the madness. And a lot of what we do in public policy and in government and those sorts of things is completely mad. And it doesn't help future generations. And it doesn't help to get to long term solutions. So a lot of what I do is try and say, why are we doing that? And how have you thought about the interests of future generations when you're doing that? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. It's amazing that you have, yeah, that there are, you're challenging that. And I think I'm looking forward to speaking more into the education program that's coming Mm -hmm. in September because that, it just sounds absolutely amazing. So I can't Mm -hmm. wait to hear more about that. But before we go into that, can you tell us what your vision is for Wales and especially for young people and for the next generations? Okay, well, perhaps I'll tell you that through the lens of my, or through the eyes of my eight-year-old daughter. So she's called Belle. She's just left year three. And I want her, when she's my age, to be leaving her home, perhaps with her own daughter or her own children, to walk to school in on a route which is not polluted by air pollution, which is a safe route, which is a route primarily for walking and cycling, not for cars. I want there to be nature on her doorstep because we know about the physical and mental health benefits to being surrounded by nature. I want her kids to be going into school, entering into free breakfast clubs as they do now, but also a much broader range of kind of free activities, really focusing on some of those important skills around working together, around empathy and well-being, around creativity. I want the education system for what would be, I suppose, my grandchildren to be one in which those skills are really, really valued. And they're not tested and assessed on the basis of how much knowledge you can kind of spew out in a two hour exam by writing essays. I want it to be tested in a different way. I want her children to understand the connection between what we do as citizens and how we protect our planet and that connection back to nature. At the moment, you know, there's some research which says young people can name up to a thousand corporate logos, but they can only name six species of trees. And that is kind of completely mad when we think about it and think how fundamental protecting our planet is. I want her to be in a job which is flexible and which allows her to shop locally with food which is sustainably sourced and which is produced locally. And I want her to be in a workplace which supports her mental health and so on. And I want her to be physically healthy and active. And I want her to have the time and space 
to do that. So I suppose, you know, I could go on and on in a way. And I want, you know, every person, you know, Belle's got pretty good opportunities, but I want every young person to have the same opportunities that she does to be able to thrive in whichever way they choose to in life. What have you learned about the current needs of young people? I spend a lot of time talking to younger people and there are, you know, a few issues that come up regularly. So they are the climate emergency, concerns about mental health in particular, and then a lot of concerns around sort of job security, the types of jobs that might be available you know, once young people leave school and so on, how well equipped they'll be to go into those jobs. And then also a lot of concern about, you know, housing and the ability of young people to, you know, and there's lots of evidence to suggest that young people today are much, much less likely to ever be able to own their own homes and so on. But even like the affordability of rent and those sorts of things. So they kind of corral around those areas, which is why actually in terms of the priorities that I've set, because the brief is really huge. So I've sort of focused down. So the things that I focus on are housing planning and transport and then jobs and skills for the future, better ways of keeping people well and tackling childhood adversities. So and kind of cross-cutting themes, I suppose, through all of those issues are tackling the climate emergency and reducing inequality. That's amazing. And what ways are you tackling the climate emergency at the moment? Or what are maybe some plans for the future? For that? Yeah, so there's lots going on in Wales. So, you know, talking, thinking about those areas that I just talked about, because tackling the climate emergency is kind of, in some ways, it's not a thing of itself. It's kind of how we do things in other policy areas. So about, you know, 17 odd percent of our carbon emissions come from transport, for example. So one of the things we need to do to reduce our emissions is change the way that we travel. And that's really difficult because, you know, if you've travelled, you know, any distance or regularly on our public transport, you'll know that often it's pretty rubbish. And that is because of records, you know, long, long term sort of lack of investment, if you like. And so, One of the early things that I did as the Future Generations Commissioner was to sort of intervene in plans that the government had to spend one and a half billion pounds on building a new stretch of motorway at the M4 around Newport, asking them, how is that going to help to reduce our carbon emissions and how is that going to help us to improve public transport, which is what we need to do across the board. And as a result of that, that sort of road was considered to be a done deal and it was going to go ahead, but it was stopped following my intervention. And then there were big changes that we worked with the government on to the whole sort of transport strategy for Wales. So what you'll see now is that there we were spending two thirds of all of the money that we spend on infrastructure investment on building roads. That's now gone down to a third And the money has shifted towards investing in public transport. Now, some of the problem with that is none of that is immediate. So, you know, I still get frustrated when, you know, I'll be walking out of my office today and the trains are on strike and the bus station hasn't been built yet properly in Cardiff. So I'll be walking a long way to get to the bus stop and all of those things. So I get that people are still kind of frustrated about that, but we have a long-term plan and the money flow in to fund that long-term plan, which should make it a lot better in time for people to be able to have public transport as a kind of viable option. And then things like questioning the government on how they're spending their money. So, you know, as I said, 
for example, you know, they were spending extra money on tackling the climate emergency over here, but then over there kind of undoing all of that because they were kind of investing it in roads. Things like how can we improve the quality of people's homes? So we're in a cost of living crisis at the moment. And there's a really kind of obvious solution to trying to alleviate some of those problems with the cost of living crisis and the energy bills in particular. And that is help people to improve the insulation and the energy efficiency of their homes. So that's something that we need to do in order to reduce our carbon emissions and tackle climate change in the long term. But it's also something that if we get it right, do it quickly now, it can help to reduce people's energy bills and deal with the cost of living crisis. It can help to create new jobs from all the people who are going to be required to sort of install, you know, new boilers and so on. And therefore it can help to regenerate communities. So a lot of the stuff that I do is trying to find the things that, yes, will tackle climate change, but will have these kind of multiple benefits. And then there are things like there are massive gaps in jobs and skills in what we call a kind of green economy. So those jobs that we're going to need to meet our climate change targets. So they're the people who are going to install our electric vehicle infrastructure. They're the people who are going to fit new boilers in our homes. They're the people who are going to, you know, service the renewable energy technology and, and so on and so on. They're the people who are going to work in nature because we need to restore our kind of natural environment and so on. And some of the work that I've been doing is saying, well, look, there's potential for about 26 thousand new jobs to be created in those areas in Wales and then you've got all of these young people who want to go into high quality jobs who are going to pay well so there's something that you've got to do as a government which is not just carry on with apprenticeships and training and so on in an old way but actually really direct some of that training towards those jobs in the green economy so we're taking people out of poverty because they're getting good jobs but also we're filling the gaps in skills in terms of you know what we'll need to do to meet our climate targets so lots of different work that I've been involved in there and lots of impact and changes to the way that the government spend their money which is you know often one of the biggest things to drive change isn't it how we spend our money and then some really interesting things like you know reducing our waste So, you know, as individuals, we probably recycle. Wales is actually the second best country in the world for its rates of recycling. So that's something we can be quite proud of. Yeah. And but Wales has got this kind of aspiration to go beyond recycling. So we want to move to what we call like a circular economy. So what does that mean in practice? It basically means that we instead of just recycling, you know, we're going to turn our plastic bottles into, I don't know, the surface of new roads or something like that through you know new technology and so on actually how can we kind of reduce our consumption in the first place so that's things like packaging but also how can we kind of reuse things so the welsh approach to that is things like you know and i see it in my kids school how are we like reusing school uniform for example now Sounds simple, but actually you start to reuse school uniform. That means you've got less clothes going to landfill. In my kids' school, there's a kind of school uniform swap shop. So it doesn't cost anything. So people who are living in poverty who can't afford the hundreds of pounds that it costs to buy school uniform every year are able to use school uniform that has been passed down. And that's just become the normal, the norm. Whether you can afford it or can't afford it, everyone is just sort of reusing school uniform. Now, 
it's kind of obvious, isn't it? So why have we not been doing that before? But these new initiatives that the Welsh Government are putting in place to facilitate those sorts of things to happen, to set up repair cafes, to get your phone repaired or your washing machine repaired or any of those sorts of things instead of buying you, all of those things add up to us in Wales using far less you know material raw material and producing far less waste all of which has this consequence on our environment so lots of things like that that I've been involved in in pushing but still a lot more to do yeah that sounds amazing that's so good and can you tell us a bit more about you mentioned earlier but can you tell us about the new curriculum coming in September because that's so exciting Yeah, so again, I think it's something that Wales can be really proud of. So, you know, a new curriculum has kind of been in development for quite some time. It's been rolled out in primary schools for a little while now. And from September, it'll be coming in in secondary schools. And basically what it tries to do is to sort of shift away from, you know, narrow teaching and learning of, you know, sort of, you know, key facts, figures, those sorts of things towards how do you think about things holistically. So, for example, and I know this firsthand because my fourth son is going up to high school and I've you know just heard it from the teachers in the school open day, they will be looking at a range of different things like history. So they're going to be looking at the history of Cardiff Bay. They'll then be looking at, okay, so what are the equality issues in terms of that history? What are the differences between the Black community and the history of the Somali community there? So talking, using that as an opportunity to talk about racism and to talk about what we might need to do to tackle that. They'll be looking at sort of geography through the lens of what does Cardiff Bay look like in terms of its geography? They'll be talking about cultural issues like what are the sort of, you know, what's the type of religions and the different types of religions that exist in Cardiff Bay? And, you know, it's just looking at things in a more real life perspective. And I think that's incredibly exciting for Wales rather than just teaching, you know, facts and figures on the basis of a particular subject area. And the other thing about the curriculum is it's got these kind of four key purposes. So it's aiming to create creative and enterprising citizens. Well, creativity is going to be a key skill for the future. It's one of the things that perhaps previously in our education system, the arts and creative arts and so on, have been kind of like, you know, the le- almost seen as the lesser subjects. But in the future, it's going to be creative. That sort of sense of creativity is going to be even more important than ever. It's got a focus around educating our young people to be ethical and informed citizens. Now, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? Does that mean we're really understanding about how the way in which we consume products is having a damaging effect on the planet? Does it mean us learning about, you know, how the things that we do are really impacting on the lives of people in the global south and how climate change is caused by us, but the price will primarily be paid, at least in the short term, by people who won't be able to grow their food in sub-Saharan Africa and those sorts of things. That's really important. Then a focus on kind of being healthy, active, confident learners and I don't think there's been enough focus previously in the curriculum around our physical health. We've got an obesity crisis here in Wales, but also our mental health. 
And we know that that's a massive concern for young people in particular. So the fact that our curriculum is kind of focused around delivering those things, those are the outcomes we want to achieve rather than can you recite every historical event that happened between this year and that year, which, you know, might float someone's boat, but certainly doesn't float mine. And if I wanted to know that, I would Google it. What I want to know is how do I bring skills, knowledge, critical thinking, a passion for a particular subject, a sense of creativity to the way in which I'm learning and sort of developing. And those are the sorts of things which are going to give our young people skills for life rather than just, you know, testing their knowledge. Yeah, that's amazing. It makes total sense because I remember so much of my GCSEs and things that I feel like I couldn't tell you anything really. But well, and I've got dyslexia so lots of the things that I'd read in the textbooks it would just go in but it would just take me like I would just be memorizing and going over again and again and again and again to get it to kind of like sink in and then I would be able to do my GCSEs and things but it was all around memory and my memory wasn't very good so it was such a challenge for me to get my education Yeah, you're so right. And I think, you know, three of my five children are dyslexic too, and they have some of those exact issues. But two of them, they're so creative. And, you know, I think they will be the kids in the future who are developing like really creative solutions to things. And I just don't think that those sorts of skills have been properly valued in the past. But essentially, what we need to be focusing on is the things that robots can't do. Robots are outperforming us on knowledge, on writing essays, on, you know, even on, you know, doing medical diagnostics and, you know, contracts if you're a lawyer and, you know, all of those sorts of things. What they can't do is bring that creativity and that human kind of touch to things. So that's the stuff that we've got to foster in our children and tell them that those are the really, really important things and make sure our school system is sort of focusing on that. Yeah, that's so amazing. That's so exciting to, yeah, you must be so excited to be a part of such an amazing change. Because that's huge, really. It's absolutely huge. And funnily enough, I was talking, gosh, it was to my husband last night who had been at some international conference and people were actually, you know, he was saying from where he was from Wales and people were saying, oh, you've got this new education curriculum there, haven't you? It's amazing. And the comparisons between what we're doing in Wales, even as compared to England, who were like nowhere near what we're doing. I frequently hear teachers saying we want to teach in Wales because of this new approach, because teachers have been kind of crying out for this you know, we want to teach and we want to do that in the best way for our children rather than having to be really rigid about teach these particular things in this particular way. And it gives teachers and schools a lot more freedom to work out what are the best ways to, you know, the best topics to focus on for their schools and their particular school environment. What are the best ways to teach that? And that's kind of really important to allow that flexibility rather than like a one size fits all approach that we've had in the past yeah that's so good that's really good and I noticed in your act about the skills learning for minority groups is this a part of the curriculum or is this something a different project 
So there's a few different elements to that. So, you know, part of this new curriculum about being ethical and informed citizens, of course, that is about understanding difference between people, celebrating that difference. Wales is the first country in the UK to have black history as a mandatory part of the curriculum. It's also having education on healthy relationships, for example, as part of the curriculum. And I'm, you know, really passionate about that because I spent a long time before I did this job working with victims of domestic abuse, for example. And often what you see is people who've grown up in households where domestic abuse was an issue don't understand what a healthy relationship looks like because that's become their normal. So trying to break that cycle in schools is really, really important as well. But the other element that I'm focusing on is what I was describing earlier around the potential for these jobs in the green economy and the potential for really high quality, well-paid jobs there. The problem is, is that at the moment, most of the people, they're big skills gaps, but the people who are in those jobs are predominantly white men. And so if we don't make some real interventions in targeting women very early on in the sort of school career to talk about construction, to talk about engineering, to talk about, you know, some of the jobs that women don't traditionally go into. And if we don't make some real efforts to connect with Black, Asian, minority ethnic communities, for example, then we're at real risk of filling those high quality jobs with more white men and actually just almost like exasperating the kind of exasperating the inequality gap, which is why part of my role is saying to government, you've got to join these things up. You've got to think not just about filling those jobs, because that's good for the economy and that's good for tackling poverty, but who are you going to target those jobs at so we can make sure that we're not making inequality even worse than it already is? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really good. Yeah, that's so good. And I was also reading through your well-being goals. Can you give us a list of those? You have met, it seems like you've mentioned quite a few, but is there mm-hmm. any that haven't been mentioned? Yeah, okay. So the Future Generations Act, it does a few different things. I think I mentioned earlier that it requires all of our institutions to demonstrate how they're taking into account the needs of future generations when they're taking decisions. But it also sets out this kind of vision for the whales that we want to see, if you like. And I described what that kind of means to me, you know, through the eyes of my daughter, I suppose, when she grows up. But in Wales, we have that set out in law. We have a vision of the whales that we want to leave behind to future generations. And that vision is set out through these seven interconnected long-term wellbeing goals. So those goals are for a prosperous Wales, a more resilient Wales, and that's about the resilience of our ecosystems, nature, biodiversity, making sure that we're not damaging nature any further, and in fact, we're restoring it. A healthier Wales, which is where people's sort of physical and mental health and well-being is maximised. A Wales of cohesive communities. So this is about, you know, safe, attractive, vibrant communities that everyone feels part of. It's for a more equal Wales, which is, you know, regardless of where you come from, what your background is, what your race is or religion or gender or, you know, whether you're able-bodied or not, that you should be able to thrive. And then Wales, a vibrant culture and thriving Welsh language. So, you know, the importance of our language, our heritage, and then a globally responsible Wales. And our public institutions have duties to demonstrate how they are achieving all of those seven wellbeing goals. And it's my job to hold them to account on how they do that. Yeah, amazing. There's so much going on. (laughs) So good. 
but sorry going back to the school things I really wanted to know because it's such a huge deal have you had much resistance around it no not at all really certainly on the curriculum because I think this is kind of what teachers have been you know wanting to do for a long time so you know you mentioned you were dyslexic and you know and I've had similar conversations with my kids teachers that they can kind of see that the way this almost relentless focus on you know learn these times tables and learn these spelling words and you know and do these things it kind of like certainly for my kids and I don't know if it's the same for you it it turns you off learning it makes you just go oh no I just and I think often teachers can see that you know the way in which the system was requiring them to do that was possibly not the best thing actually for their pupils either for their learning journey or for their well-being and so there hasn't really been you know a big part of it is that the curriculum has been what we call co-created so kind of co-designed with teachers and so on so whenever you want to try and get something right you know work right from the outset not just at the end with the people who are going to be delivering it for you so that's what's happened here in Wales there is some resistance part of the challenge that I'm giving now is about reforms to the qualification system starting with GCSEs because the new curriculum is absolutely brilliant but when you get to year 10 in high school basically it's all about how do you pass your GCSEs And so all of that brilliant stuff that we've just been talking about shifts from being brilliant stuff to how are you, you know, we are now going to teach you how to, you know, pass exams, basically. And so I think that we need a massive reform in our examination system so as not to undo, if you like, the stuff that we've done, like in terms of reforms to the curriculum. So there is some resistance to that amongst parents, amongst teachers, amongst the people who do the qualifications and assessment, partly because it's difficult. You know, how do you have a really fair assessment system when you're not, you know, perhaps having the sort of exam conditions and testing everyone against a certain, you know, the same criteria and so on. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't try it. And that's where I think, you know, COVID, I know COVID and the changes to exams and stuff and all the uncertainty around that was really difficult for a lot of young people, obviously, because it was in the middle of a crisis and no one really knew what was happening. But The fact that there weren't exams there and it went off teacher-based assessment and so on shows that something different can be done. Now, that system's probably not perfect, but let's all work together to work out how do we make sure that when we're, you know, doing something as fundamental as, you know, GCSEs, which are often your sort of passport, you know, into later life, that they're really testing important things, not things which are, you know, really things of the past, which are not really going to be much use to children young people and not even much use to employers either yeah definitely it feels as well as though it will improve just general confidence mm-hmm. in like themselves because like there's one thing being able to just recite a fact about something and just speak about facts and it's another thing actually coming up with something new and putting your own ideas across and I think yeah fostering that environment I think Mm -hmm. wonders for people's self-esteem absolutely I think you're so right and you know I think we've seen the power of young people you know I see it on a daily basis in terms of our young climate ambassadors and advocates we've seen it on a global scale through people like Greta Thunberg we've seen young people leading the Black Lives Matter campaign we've seen 
you know, young people really, you know, getting the government to shift on period poverty and all of those sorts of things. And those are the young people that we should be trying to create. Now, okay, not everyone is going to be a kind of campaigner and a, you know, someone who's going to change the law or government policy or so on. But, you know, we do want them to be, we want them to be the creatives of the future. We want them to be the people who are kind of going, okay, I'm a creative, but how do I communicate through my art or through my drama or through my music, the action that we might all need to take on climate change? Or how can I use my creativity to use technology in a way which is going to be for kind of, you know, global good rather than just helping people to sell more stuff to people that, you know, none of us really need. So I think we've got to really, you know, encourage our young people. Our system has got to get young people leading the way and young people leading the conversations and for that not just to be okay but for that to be absolutely what we're striving for yeah that's amazing and you've got your you've got the leadership academy with young people Mm. haven't you and how did that come about and how did you come up with that name because me and amy were speaking about the other day how amazing that name is (laughs) Well, I mean, I suppose it's for exactly the reasons I've just said. I think young people need to be leading the conversation. So you think that at the moment across, you know, all of our kind of main institutions, whether that's in the public sector or private companies, you've generally got people who are often in their 50s, perhaps, who are, you know, leading those companies, the chief executives, the politicians and so on. They're usually white, they're usually in their 50s, they're usually male. We're actually doing a bit better on politics around gender in particular. And, you know, if we just think about, you know, the differences in those people's lives as compared to a 16-year-old's life. So a 16-year-old is a digital native. They've grown up in a digital world. Um, They, you know, probably are thinking about climate change. They're not buying things potentially from, you know, from shops. They're buying things off Vintage and Depop and, and so on. They want to be able to interact in a different way just because the adults or the older people are saying, oh, you need to get your head out of your computer, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're going to be lonely and isolated. It doesn't mean that that's the case. It means that they're a part of a different community, an online community that perhaps a 50-year-old leader doesn't understand. So the point I'm trying to make is those people are developing policy now for our future generations, often without any understanding whatsoever about the lives that future generations or our younger generations are leading. And so that's why I established the Future Leaders Academy to say, these are young people who, you know, we want to be you know, leaders of the future. We want them to be leading in a different way, which is leading in a collaborative way, leading in a way which is constantly looking to the future and realising that when they become 40 or 50, actually, they need to be looking back and involving younger generations as well. But also this Leadership Academy pairs those young leaders with existing leaders and those young leaders mentor the current leaders. You usually get it the other way around, don't you? You usually get the people with all the experience, the older people mentoring the younger people. Well, no, we've turned that on its head because what we're saying as a current leader, you need, if you're going to be doing your job properly, to be understanding what the future looks like. And therefore, you need mentoring from our younger generations to help you to understand that. So that's part of what they've been doing. And it's one of the best things I've ever done because they are the people and the other young people I come into contact with who just, you know, totally inspire me every day. 
Yeah, that's amazing. That's so cool. What are the ages that we're mentoring the older people? So our Future Leaders programme is kind of age 18 to 30. So it's people who are already showing some kind of leadership capability in whatever field. So it could be in a particular, you know, organisational sector, could be community leadership, you know, could be a whole range of different things. So we've just finished the second cohort of that. So we've got 50 future leaders now who've been through this program and then we'll be starting another one towards the end of this year so the idea is is that we have a growing number of these young leaders in all different parts of you know Wales geographically but also Wales in terms of the different sectors different companies different organizations and so on who really understand what leading for future generations looks like and have the skills and the connections through the colleagues that they meet and so on to sort of really take that forward yeah that's so good I also think there's nothing really more empowering than having someone older almost look for you for advice on something when you're sharing about that I just suddenly have a memory of when I was younger in my teen years and I honestly remember the joy that I felt when somebody in my church who was uh, this about 50 and he was a close friend of our family and he was just but out of genuine curiosity and really wanting to know what I was about to say on something I can't fully remember what it was about but remember him literally so genuinely wanting to know what I was going to say and was like what are your thoughts on this what's your perspective and when I was answering and he was listening so intently I honestly, I just felt so filled. It gave me a lot of confidence as well mm-hmm. in my own perspectives. I mean, like, wow, it just yeah. it a lot to me. It is so powerful. So I think that's a really amazing way of doing things. Totally. Yeah, I think you're spot on. It's really empowering, but also we absolutely need young people's voices to get things right, because otherwise we're just going to be doing things which we know as you know, well, I'm not counting myself in we, I'm not 50 yet, but, you know, we know as older people, but we don't have any, like, comprehension of what a younger generation might need. So we're going to be getting things wrong. So we absolutely need your advice and insight. Yeah. And how did you find getting people on board with the Into Leadership Academy? Was it easy or was it something that you had to really shout out about what it is, what it involved and offer incentives? We were inundated with applications. I was really pleased about the kind of diversity that we had. So, gosh, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but... I think around about 25% of participants from a Black Asian minority ethnic background. We had a young care leaver as part of our cohort, a number of people, neurodiverse participants, and just a wide range of kind of different sectors, more women than men on this cohort. So I was really, really pleased about that, that we were kind of getting that message out. Of course, we can always do much, much better and, you know, if you've got any ideas of how we get the next advert out when we're looking for the next cohort, then, you know, we'd love to work with you guys to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, because we've been focusing as well on how to just make sure we're getting diverse groups of people mm-hmm. going on. And that's something that we're constantly learning of and thinking about new ways of how we can attract, I guess, people from all walks of life and show that we are 
yeah we just want everybody's perspective but yeah I think I just wanted to tell you a little bit about our project and then see if you have any advice for us so we're really excited at single parents well-being because we've just got funding from the National Lottery Community Fund to launch a new project called Mental Health Manifesto and it will be for young people between the ages of 10 and 24 and it will be co-producing a project which we don't know the name of it yet because it will come from them but it will be yeah co-producing a campaign that will help them build a mentally healthy future and so that's pretty much it and I think because everything will be co-produced by them I have no idea what it will fully look like (laughs) which has been I'm so eager to get straight into it because I'm just excited to see what will come because I'm almost trying to just not assume what they're going to think or what they're going to say because it might be something so different Mm -hmm. but yeah we're really looking forward to bringing them into every single stage of the process so we actually have a whole year of planning it with them so we have a year-long process to design the program with them so they will be brought into the planning and partner meetings with our four other partner organizations and they will get across what they want and they will be the main steering group of the whole thing which is really cool that it really will be from them and yeah so do you have any advice for us as we go into the discovery stage of getting them on board because at the moment we do have interest we've begun to gauge the interest it's also quite I don't know it's a hard one to fully communicate to them because it's not something where we can be like this is what we're doing and yeah would you like to join because it's something where they will be creating yeah yeah. it's Uh almost hard to get their interest if that makes sense and for them to be like oh yeah I love the sound of that when I don't think they realize quite how much it's whole initiative that is for them for them to be able to use their creativity and their passions and dreams to have their say in building all of it so I think that's something that is quite hard to approach in the initial stages of reaching out to people so Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts yeah on that yeah I totally get where you're coming from how would you get people excited and engaged when you haven't got a kind of, you know, this is the thing that we're doing because you want their ideas to work out what that is. I think this goes back a bit to what we're trying to do with the Future Generations Act. When I was talking about kind of everything being connected and looking at things holistically. So, you know, often if you start a discussion, for example, around mental health, people will immediately go into, oh, right, well, it's about, you know, there's not enough funding going into camps and, you know, there's not enough crisis funding and, you know, there's not enough sort of support and so on and so on. All of those things are right and absolutely valid. If, however, you start from the perspective of what is it that kind of keeps us mentally well in the first place? You know, maybe open questions like what is it that makes you happy? What is it that helps you to be happy? And there, you know, sometimes it's those things or if, if we ask questions like, you know, what is it that matters to you? If I asked you, you know, that in terms of, you know, 
public policy and politician, they would be talking about the economy, they would be talking about so on and so on. But if I asked you as a person, you know, what matters to you or what makes you happy, you would probably say things like, you know, it's my kids, spending time with my kids. Okay, so you plot that back. What does spending time with my kids look like? Does that mean that I need to work fewer hours? Does that mean that I need to be able to create space for quality time? Where do I spend time with my kids? Have I got a nice environment where I can spend time with my kids? Is the fact that my housing perhaps isn't, you know, of a decent standard, is that impeding me spending that sort of quality time with my kids? How do I want to spend that time when I, you know, when I step outside my house? You know, is it a nice environment to come into? Am I worried about air pollution? Am I able to take advantage of, you know, nature and, you know, walking in the park and or walking in a forest and all of those benefits that come? So I think it's about posing those kind of open questions rather than narrowing it down initially. And what we often find when we do a lot of these things, it's we often try and get what we sort of call the unusual suspects in the room. So if you're talking, if you're going to have a session talking about mental health and what a mental health manifesto might look like, maybe you want to bring someone in who is an expert in nature, or maybe you want to bring someone in who is, you know, an expert in education, or maybe you want to bring someone in who, you know, does completely different things because they will be looking at that question from a kind of different perspective in a way and sometimes that helps people to spark different ideas and start thinking actually hmm, the stuff that does make a difference to me and stuff that does make me happy is perhaps not this very narrow stuff it's all this sort of wider stuff and I think that that's kind of where we go wrong in public policy there's a little country called Bhutan which has got something called a gross national happiness index and they test all of their government's policies as to whether it's going to make their citizens happier or not, which is kind of pretty cool. It's seen as a bit mad by some countries, but I don't think it's mad at all because shouldn't governments be in the business of having happy citizens? And one of the questions that they ask is, how do you spend your time? And that's a measure of kind of like how happy you might be. And in applying those sorts of things, they have been able over a decade to reduce poverty from 34%, I think it is, to 10% in a decade, just by saying, if we spend our money like this, is it going to improve happiness? Or if we spend it like that, it's going to improve happiness. And so I think there's something around that, you know, what is it that makes life worthwhile? What is it that makes you happy? What is it that prevents you from being happy? And perhaps trying to get into some of those areas that perhaps aren't traditionally talked about in terms of impact on mental health. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I totally see that. And I think it's, I guess, like breaking that question down and then delving into the their mm-hmm. passions and like sparking those thoughts. Yeah. yeah so good. Yeah. 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 Did you have anything to add? I was just going to say something about kind of community as well. I think particularly in terms of mental health and thinking about, you know, young parents in particular, I was a young parent. I had was pregnant with my first son in my final year of, of university and didn't really have a clue what I was doing and was really scared. And the only thing that kind of kept me going was kind of parent toddler groups and those sorts of things, which I always thought I was way too cool to go to. But actually those kind of community things are really, really important in terms of those kind of support networks and so on. And I think people who don't have that sense of community and are quite isolated, 
their mental health. You know, there's every chance that their mental health will suffer. And there's lots of evidence. Public Health Wales have just produced this week, actually, a big report showing the real importance of that kind of sense of community and having people around you that you can trust and rely on and those sorts of things to your physical and your mental health. So again, I would be thinking it's not necessarily always about public services and does this service need to be better or does this service need to be created? Sometimes it's about creating that space for, you know, people to connect with other people and, you know, that to be facilitated and supported by public services rather than delivered by them as we traditionally think. Yeah. I guess it is just much more relational, isn't it? And it's that chance to build a relationship almost just in an unprofessional way, which I think exactly can. Yeah. I think the relational element of it and knowing Mm -hmm. that the friendship isn't that you can actually build a friendship and there's only so much you can maybe build a friendship with someone who's, I don't know, a doctor or things. Exactly. Yeah. Different relationships, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I, quite equal two-sided thing. You're absolutely spot on. And you're far more likely to sort of talk and connect to that person and probably get more out of it than a professional. I always think back to this, when I had my fifth child, so what, you know, I was a pretty experienced mum by that point and used to go along to get your baby weighed and so on. And they used to do it in the church hall and the health visitors would get the babies, you know, get the babies weighed. And then they'd have just, they'd set up a few toys and access to tea and coffee and stuff. Some some mums or dads could stay along and kind of chat and what have you. And the number of conversations that I had in that environment with new mums who were going, oh my God, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm stop crying. And, you know, it's so like, like, oh, have you tried this? Or have you tried that? Or, you know, arrange to go and have a coffee with them next week or, you know, and, and so on. And then they stopped doing it there because hiring the church hall cost 15 quid for those two hours that they had it. And the weighing could be done in the doctor's surgery. Now that was just completely such the wrong thing to do because by saving 15 quid on hiring a church hall for a couple of hours, which facilitated those conversations. I mean, you know, if I was an academic, I'd try and actually work this through. I wouldn't mind betting that that, interaction with other mums with a community probably saved an antidepressant bill probably saved a load of doctor's visits and so on and so that's where I think we need to really kind of be thinking quite broadly about this rather than in a very narrow way we need to be thinking about those things that actually make life worthwhile and the things that matter to people and you know as you said back to sort of the human and the relational in a way yeah that's so good it's almost the just really basic, simple things that have seemed to have got missed. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe just to save money and things. Yeah. So what is your mental health manifesto? Ooh, my mental health manifesto, well, it's, you know, to connect back to the things that matter to people. I suppose we've described it, haven't we, as the relational. And to think about the relationship between mental health and our surroundings and our environment mental health and the quality of our relationships and the sense of community mental health and you know the impact that living in poverty has and so the answer I think to good mental health is to tackle those issues and get those issues right and I think that there's a much better chance of good mental health 
flowing from those things rather than just thinking, oh, we've got a big problem with mental health. Everyone needs treatment or intervention. Prevention is much better than cure. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. And if you could go back and say anything to your younger self, what would you say? Oh, gosh. There's, well, there's a, there's a few life mottos that I think I live by now. So I think I would say, well-behaved women never make history. So I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a disruptor and there's nothing wrong for, you know, about speaking up for what you believe in and, you know, don't be afraid to do that and keep doing it. And then I think I would also say, feel the fear and do it anyway. I think certainly I look back on the things that I was scared about, you know, public speaking, speaking up about this, or what if these people don't like me or what if I'm saying this wrong or or so on and so on. And, you know, I think that sometimes you just need to put yourselves in positions that you feel uncomfortable with and that enables you to kind of grow. Often those things that I've worried about and so on, they've never turned out to be as bad as I thought that they would be. And where I have done those things that have made me uncomfortable, but for a kind of greater good, it's always enabled me to kind of grow in a different way. So I suppose that would be my advice to my younger self. Yeah, that's so good. It definitely, yeah, it's led you to where you are today and it's making so much difference. So yeah, thank you for everything you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That's okay. Can I ask you one last question really quick Mm. on the back of what you said, because I thought it was so good. And that's kind of a message that we really want to be. We just want to, when we engage with young people, we want to be encouraging them to become change makers. And I loved what you said, and I will be re-saying that to them in the part of the process of doing that. Do you have any other ways of empowering young people to maybe face those intimidating things and of just yeah of speaking out about what they think is right and yeah Mm -hmm. I think there's always safety in numbers isn't there and one of the I suppose main life lessons that I would give anyone is find your tribe who are the people who've got your back so you know it might be you know your friends who are going to you know, pour your glass of wine if you've had a tough week. It might be the people who are going to, you know, in my life, it's the people who help to pick the kids up from school and remind me that it's P day when I've forgotten. And it's the people who are going to stand behind me when, you know, I'm making points about something or raising something which is difficult or so on. And I think, you know, if you can find that tribe, then, you know, that is incredibly empowering. And I suppose the flip side of that is be part of someone's tribe. So, you know, particularly, I think for women, you know, there's this concept, isn't there, of the old boys network and so on. And women particularly need to get behind and support women and, yeah, be part of that tribe. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I'm glad I asked that last question because, yeah, thank you. That's so good. Oh, well, thank you so much for... You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening to Compassionate Conversations Series 2. You can find us on Single Parents Wellbeing. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our next episodes. See you soon.